Good morning, everybody. So nice of you to spend your morning with us. Uh, Our prayer above everything else is that you would sense God's presence and that God's word would open you up, open your life up, live more spaciously than you have before. About four weeks ago, I I did a talk called um, uh, Faith That Gets God's Attention. And then uh, last week, I I, I did a talk and I called it Leper Faith, but you kind of have to listen to it to understand what that means. But I gave this week's talk, and again, I'm not making this stuff up, but I just started reading, and, and this week is called Hopeless Faith, all right? It's called Hopeless Faith. Uh, Admiral William uh, McRaven, I, I listened to a talk that he did, this decorated uh, person who has... Uh, has this talk out and it it kind of went viral. He said, if you really want to change the world, start by making your bed in the morning. If you really want to change the world, start by making your bed in the morning. He said, if you make your bed every morning, you'll accomplish your first task before you even brush your teeth. And when you make your bed in the morning, you'll get just this very small sense of pride and encouragement to do your next task and your next task and your next task. That's how he begins the, this, this talk. And I'm gonna let you listen to how that same talk ends as we watch this together. Before the rest of us, SEAL training was a great equalizer. Nothing mattered but your will to succeed, not your color, not your ethnic background, not your education, not your social status. If you wanna change the world, measure a person by the size of their heart, not by the size of their flippers. The ninth week of training is referred to as Hell Week. It is six days of no sleep, constant physical and mental harassment, and one special day at the Mud Flats. The Mud Flats are an area between San Diego and Tijuana where the water runs off and creates the Tijuana Sloughs, a swampy patch of terrain where the mud will engulf you. It is on Wednesday of Hell Week that you paddle down to the mud flats and spend the next 15 hours trying to survive the freezing cold, the howling wind, and the incessant pressure to quit from the instructors. As the sun began to set that Wednesday evening, my training class, having committed some egregious infraction of the rules, was ordered into the mud. The mud consumed each man till there was nothing visible but our heads. The instructors told us we could leave the mud if only five men would quit. Only five men, just five men, and we could get out of the oppressive cold. Looking around the mud flat, it was apparent that some students were about to give up. It was still over eight hours till the sun came up. Eight more hours of bone-chilling cold. The chattering teeth and the shivering moans of the trainees were so loud, it was hard to hear anything. And then one voice began to echo through the night. One voice raised in song. The song was terribly out of tune, but sung with great enthusiasm. One voice became two, and two became three, and before long, everyone in the class was singing. The instructors threatened us with more time in the mud if we kept up the singing, but the singing persisted, and somehow the mud seemed a little warmer, and the wind a little tamer, and the dawn not so far away. If I have learned anything in my time traveling the world, 
it is the power of hope. The power of one person. A Washington, a Lincoln, King, Mandela, and even a young girl from Pakistan, Malala. One person can change the world by giving people hope. So if you want to change the world, start each day with a task completed. Find someone to help you through life. Respect everyone. Know that life is not fair and that you will fail often. But if you take some risks, step up when the times are the toughest, face down the bullies, lift up the downtrodden, and never, ever give up. If you do these things, the next generation and the generations that follow will live in a world far better than the one we have today. And what started here will indeed have changed the world for the better. You never know how close the person you are talking to is to giving up. And this morning, I want to add my voice to that one voice, that one song. My prayer is that this talk will encourage you if you are in a place of utter hopelessness. Hope itself is an incredible force, an incredible power. It's so subtle, it's so quiet. Often it's just this little light inside of you that says tomorrow will be better than today. It's this voice that whispers ever so quietly and promises you will not always hurt this much. I promise you it will get better. I want to read a verse for you. And this verse, I read it, and you're not going to, hopefully you'll get it right off the bat, but it's kind of the, the heartbeat of this whole talk. Isaiah 54 said, you've never had children, but now you can be glad. You've never had, never given birth, but now you can shout. Once you had no children, but now you will have more children than a woman that has been married for a long time. And I tell you this because, you see, the God that we worship, the God that we sing to, the God we believe in, specializes in but now. I know you've been stuck for a long time. But now. And I know that you're discouraged. But now. If I had a word in my heart for you today, is that the word of the Lord to you is, but now things begin to shift. They begin to change. I love this prayer. Dear God, I tried my best, but if today I lose my hope, please tell me that your plans are better than my dreams. There's a beautiful story in the book of 1 Samuel. A story of God touching a woman's hopelessness and using her life profoundly. Samuel chapter one, I'm gonna start in verse one. There was a certain man from the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Elkanah. He had two wives, one called Hannah, the other called Penina. Penina had children, Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of meat to his wife 
Penina and to all of her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her. And the Lord had closed her womb. And because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival, that's Penina, kept provoking her in order to, to irritate her. And this went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her until she wept, would not eat. And her husband Elkanah would say, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than 10 sons? Once, when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on a chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. She made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. And no razor will ever be used on his head. And as she kept praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart and her lips were moving, but no, her voice was not heard. And Eli thought she was drunk. He said to her, how long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I'm a woman who's deeply troubled. I've not been drinking wine or beer. I'm pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I'm praying here out of my great anguish and grief. And Eli answered, go in peace and may God of Israel grant you what you've asked of him. She said, may your servant find favor in your eyes. And then she went away. She ate something and her face was no longer downcast. Early the next morning, they arose, they worshiped before the Lord, and then they went back to their home in Ramah. Elkanah made love to his wife, Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant, gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, because I asked the Lord for him. All right, that's quite a story. Hannah is the, the, the character, I think. I, there, you, you can, you know, some of us can identify with just about everybody in this narrative. But we can identify with Hannah because of our pain and because of her pain. And what I want you to see is through her pain and through hope and through surrender, God actually uses this woman in a way that is much larger than she could have ever imagined. See, Hannah is one of two wives to Elkanah. And she is barren. She's barren. Penina has lots of kids. Penina's got boys and she's got girls. But Hannah has the love of Elkanah. She is the very thing that Penina cannot get, the very thing that Penina wants but cannot have. And because of this, Penina mocks Hannah's barrenness. 
Every time they go up to this, to, they do their, their pilgrimage to Shiloh. You know what's happening here? Every, most of the people would do this pilgrimage as kind of many of the religions and the faiths and the, even pagan faiths would do this. They would have an annual pilgrimage and you would go and then you would offer a sacrifice to whatever God as they were doing to Jehovah. And then in exchange, God would bless you. He'd bless your land. He'd bless your crops. He'd bless your business. He'd bless your marriage. Bless your wife. Give her lots of kids. And so they're, 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 they're doing this pilgrimage. And they did it every year, faithfully, every year. And every single year, Penina used this as an opportunity to let Hannah know that she was useless as a box of rocks because she couldn't have children. And every year, even before it began, Hannah got ready to get depressed. She wouldn't eat, she wasn't happy, and she cried all the time. And hopelessness is really, she's the picture of hopelessness. It's suffocating, isn't it? It's suffocating. Knowing you want something, but knowing that you can never have it. In so many ways, hopelessness is just a slower way of being dead. John Maxwell said, where there's no hope in the future, there's no power in the present. That's so true, isn't it? Why push through this day when, when your future sucks? Why, why, if there is no future, then, then, then why even live today? And the Bible says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. It's interesting that the, the, the Hebrew text here says that it describes Hannah's internal um, turmoil and it uses the word that, that Penina irritated her. Well, that doesn't mean the same as it does today. My little sisters irritated me growing up, but that's, that's, that's not what it's saying. The, the, the really, the, the Hebrew, and th this phrase has not been used regarding anybody's feelings ever before in the scriptures. It's unique to Hannah. And it means this, it's this violent storm, this roar that goes on inside of her. It's what it feels like when, when the deepest pain and the deepest shame in your life is stepped on again and again and again. You see, in, in, in ancient societies, uh, your uh, income, your status was completely a function of how many children you could have. Everything began with the number of kids that you could have. Because you see, you would die if you didn't have adult children to look after you in your old age. And in order to have two or three or four children survive to look after you in your old age, you'd have to give birth to 10 to 12 children child mortality rate was just enormous. It was very hard to live in these days. And so in ancient times, that the financial uh, and the military strength of a nation was all based on how many children a woman could have. And so a woman that had a lot of children, they were actually treated like heroes. It was like, a, you know, you're a 10-star general. You know, if you've got 10 kids. Man, you contributed to the nation, to the army, to our, to our wealth. You contributed to our, to our safety. But to a woman, for a woman who was not able to have children, she was treated like a non-contributing zero. 
You are a useless sack of skin. Why? 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 What are you good for? According to that culture. Another thing that's interesting is if you cannot invent your own future, if you, you don't have children, you have this physically, you don't have the power to create your own future, well, then you have no, no hope. And if you have no hope, then you're not actually where, it's not about your future. The fact is you have no power in your present. And that was this desperate place that Hannah was in. Another thing that's interesting about ancient cultures versus today, ancient cultures were collectivist cultures. It means that you, you might be a real zero as, a, as an individual, but if your family had status and wealth, then, then you, were, you, you were addressed according to the status and wealth of your whole family or your whole tribe. But the world we live in is very individualistic. And that, that you, you basically, it, it means that any, any, any meaning, any purpose, any value that you have comes from your own individualistic attributes. It means that your, your, your personal status, your personal beauty, your personal personality and intelligence and athleticism, your chiseled abs, or in my case, your chiseled ab, I have one. Your perfect mate, your perfect spouse, See, if you have these things, then you have worth and value. But if you don't have these things, then you too are barren. And you know what it's like to feel like nobody. Just a number. I'm just a number. That's what a friend of mine's email. And there are those of you who can identify with this kind of agony. You're alone. And you've been alone for so long. And your agony is that you don't want to be alone. But you can't make that happen. For some of you, it's your negative body image. You just, why can't I look like somebody else? Why? Do, why? And you want it, but you'll never get it because you're not that person. And for some of you, you're just pretty sure in general, you're just not enough. And what's interesting is every culture has a certain value. Every culture has, has a different value. And it says that if you have these things, then, then you have worth and you are happy. If you, have, if you have a beautiful face in this culture, then you should be happy and you should have a lot of worth. And we, we didn't make that up. The, the culture imposes that on us. And when you fall short of any of these things, you, you feel barren. And in verse five, it says that they go up to Shiloh and Elkanah's dishing out meat uh, for his, um, for Penina, and he gives some to all of her kids. Okay, and this is a public feast, okay? It's a public worship thing. But then he goes to Hannah and he gives her a double portion of all that he gave to Penina and her kids. And you want to know what that is? That is a public declaration at the feast telling everybody watching them, I choose her. She's my favorite. Hannah, I love Hannah. I love this one. And every time this happened, it triggers 
Penina's sense of worthlessness. And every time her worthlessness was triggered, she attacked Hannah's barrenness. And the cycle went around and around. And around. why they went to Shiloh, I have no idea, because that would just be a fight waiting to happen every single time. Last week, I said that the kind of faith that gets God's attention is faith in action. You, you, you can have faith and, and do nothing with your life because having faith is one thing. See, in order for faith to work, you gotta work it. It doesn't matter. It doesn't do anything if you just have it. Faith works when you work it. And in verse nine, we see Hannah starting to work her faith. I love this phrase. If you're not careful, you miss it. It tells us that one day, Hannah stood up. The Hebrew literally says, Hannah stood up and declared enough is enough. No more. It's time that something is done here. After all these years of being shamed, after all these years of being goaded, enough. And Hannah arose. It's funny because at dinner that night, Penina's chirping at Hannah. Elkanah's trying to comfort her. All these voices. Hannah stands up and leaves. Because she's got to go talk to somebody. She's got to go talk to God. It's clear that at some point in this journey, years of doing this, but this time she said, I'm going to the Lord. And she poured out her heart and her soul before the Lord. Now remember, this is, a, this is a part of the Jewish culture, this pilgrimage. And just like in church, you know, people go and, they, and then they, they, you know, they stand, they sit, they stand, they sit, they cross themselves, they do it. We, we have liturgy that we follow. They would have mechanical prayers that they would pray when at the end of the day, they just want to get there, get God to bless their crops and let's get out of here, let's get home. That's why when Eli is sitting at the door and he's watching Hannah and she is pouring, she's not just bring a piece of meat and put it on the altar. She is bringing all of her. She's pouring her heart. Eli was not used, nobody's used to seeing that. She's not even following the script. She's calling out to God out of her pain and out of her agony and out of her barrenness. She is at the bottom of her rung. And she says, remember me. Something about her prayer is really quite amazing in that she actually believes that God cares about a simple rural woman. She actually thinks he cares. Only the, the God of the Bible is infinite and intimate at the same time. In fact, with her, he's infinitely personal with her. Something happens. We're not told all that happens, but something happens. And, 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 and Hannah goes, God, you know my pain. Remember my pain. Remember my agony. Remember my grief. But now, if you give me a child, I'll give that child right back to you. If you give me a child, I'll give that child back to you. I've come here year after year asking you to give me a child for me. 
And today I realized that my identity and my security isn't in having a son. My identity and my security is in you. And if you give me a child, I will glorify you. I'll honor you and I'll give him right back to you. And he said, no razor will touch his head. You know what that's about? See, you couldn't just decide, well, I'm going to become a minister in Israel. You have to be born of the right bloodline. You have to be a Levite. And he's not. There was one other way that you could come and give your life to the Lord fully and serve him all the days of your life. And that was a Nazarite vow. And she's saying from even before he's born, he is set apart to you, which means you, 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 you can't drink, which means you don't cut your hair, which means you give yourself fully to one thing. And that is the service of God. And she said, I know I won't be able to live with my son. And I know that I won't be able to raise my son. And I know all those things. And I know he'll live here. And I live over there. But if you give him to me, Father, I'm going to give him back to you because I realize that it's for your glory. It's for your glory. And something absolutely amazing happens. The Bible says that Eli said, go in peace and may the God of Israel grant you what you've asked. And she went her way and she ate something and her face was no longer downcast. She touched God in that prayer, in that moment. It doesn't say that she, she went home, got pregnant, got peace, and her face was no longer downcast. It says that she left that place and maybe for the first time in a long time, she experienced a peace that was supernatural. She was free. She was free. She realized her identity and her salvation is not in a son, but her identity and her salvation is in God. And that moment of revelation shifted something in her and she let it go. She said, I'll give it all to you, God. I will give it all to you. And early the next morning, they pack up, they worship the Lord and they get home. And I want you to see something. I want you to see how, how when, when, when God always brings us to this place of barrenness in our lives, this place of, maybe barrenness isn't the right word, this place of where we are already at the end of ourselves. And then he lifts us up and then lifts us up again, lifts us up again. Think about how, how did you receive the love, the mercy, the grace, and the forgiveness of Christ? Is it because you were so fine? Is it because you were so good that you said, you should choose me because I'll make your team look better? Now you came broken and in need of a savior. You came broken and in need of forgiveness. And that is the posture of the heart that the Lord is looking for. And he found it in Hannah broken and surrendered. It's interesting how often God does incredible things through people who get to that place, broken and surrendered. And by the way, I hate that place. I like fat and sassy. That's, that's, my, that's my gift, fat and sassy. You know, that's where I like to live. You know, living large, you know. And, 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 and quite frankly, that's, 
God does his best work when we come to him. And you don't have to be in pain to come broken and surrendered. You can just choose that, right? That is a place, that is a posture of the heart. But it's interesting that the, the list of people that God used powerfully who were born to barren women. Isaac, Samson, Samuel, John the Baptist, all of these came from women who were barren. Barrenness in Hebrew literature is effectively a, a, a metaphor for absolutely hopelessness because you cannot invent a future when you don't have children. You don't have a future. And God is saying when you are down to nothing, you are closer to a but now moment than you could ever imagine. If you are down to nothing and there is no other place to turn, get ready to hear, but now. You've never had a children. You've never had children, but now. You've never given birth, but now. Once you had no children, but now. I'm gonna invite the team to come on up. So God keeps bringing us to this place of surrender, this place of dependency. How many of us in this place walked in here with this roaring restlessness inside of you? How many of us have come again and again and again and we're saying, Lord, this is my need, this is my want, this is me. Why? This is my itch. Why are you not scratching my itch? The Bible says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. I wonder if that's got something to do with why he keeps bringing us back to this place of utter dependence. Maybe that's why I know less than I've ever known before. I used to know so much when I was young. I was so smart. I knew everything for sure. I don't know much for sure. I'm pretty hooked on Jesus. But there's all, oh, because there's this dependence. I come, Father, I, I, you know, I, I, I don't see you clearly. None of us does. But you've given me the opportunity to stand in front of people and point to you. So help me to see what I can point to. I don't know much. I know little. And I'll walk in that little bit of grace that I have. I want to pray over you. If you came in this place and you're feeling like you're at the end of your rope, you found God's address. It's out of Isaiah 54. And if you want to, just close your eyes and just get ready to receive something from the Lord. Isaiah 54, it's verses back to verse, the same passage I've read twice now. You've never had children, but now you can be glad. You've never given birth, but now you can shout. Once you had no children, but now you will have more children than a woman who has been married for a long time. 
And he goes on to say, get ready to enlarge your dwelling place, your tent. Stretch out your tent curtains wide. Don't hold back. Dare to dream God. Dare to trust him for more. Dare to trust him for more presence, more joy, more grace, more capacity to care for people. He said, lengthen your cords, strengthen your stakes, for you will spread out to the right and you will spread out to the left. But now, God wants to do and is prepared to do more than you think. Father, we, we're a fickle people. go from strength to weakness so often it must frustrate you but I think more than anything Lord you know that and so you come to us and you say but now weeping lasts for the night but joy joy comes in the morning and so Father we our hopelessness Father we lift it up to you and thank you that your spirit is infusing it with hope Lord we are going to stay and stand in this moment and we're going to declare to the future to lengthen our cords to strengthen our pegs we're going to declare to the future to enlarge the place of our habitation to stretch our tent curtains wide and we will not hold back even though our circumstances say there's nothing out there for us we trust you Father that you have placed in us a dream you have placed in us a hope and you fulfill that hope